Vinepair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Chabal. And this is the Vinepair Podcast. And Zach, before we kick off uh, what I'm very excited to discuss this week, um, since we are very much uh, in the thick of holiday mode, um, you know, what, are, what are sort of your quick like tips and tricks for people who are sort of like getting, I think, probably a little overwhelmed in terms of what they are going to serve this holiday or, you know, what they're thinking about doing. I think there can be a lot of pressure when it comes to, uh, to holiday drinking. For sure. Well, I mean, my suggestion in any of these circumstances, whether it's, uh, you know, December or, you know, November or whatever the time of year when you're faced with that sort of like, oh shit, what do I, what do I provide? What do I bring is, is simplicity is your best friend. So if you're having people over for a holiday gathering, whether it's, uh, you know, a Christmas dinner or a Hanukkah party or just a gathering of friends to celebrate the season, I guess, or whatever that means. Um, I think you, people get themselves in trouble just like they do in the kitchen with trying to do too much. I think your best bet is stick to what you're comfortable with. So if you like making cocktails, then great. You know, be prepared to make a few different drinks. I I think it's always fun to put together a little menu. You can put two or three drinks down. They can be classics. They can be something you made up. Um, but keep it limited. So one white wine, one red wine, a couple of cocktails, a couple of beers. That way also if someone brings something, you're not, you know, you have space to kind of slide it in. But I think, you know, trying to do too much is one of the big cardinal sins, you know, unless you are really, really experienced and entertaining, you're going to just get yourself in a whole world of trouble. And who needs that any time of year, but definitely not in December. That makes a ton of sense. That makes a ton of sense. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of things like punches and also just, you know, hey, man, just like, you know, just have a bunch of stuff on hand. People can drink what they want and don't stress out too much about it. Yeah. My other tip is if you're buying wine, Look for large format bottles. Like you only have to open one or, you know, you have to open fewer of them if you're buying magnums or double magnums. They're inherently fun. People enjoy it. And the advantage, the other advantage of a larger format bottle, if you are having a number of people over is you don't have to do the thing that I find really, really frustrating when you have 10 or 15 or 20 people together who all might want to try the wine is if you open a 750, you're going to get an ounce two ounces max like that's barely enough to taste the wine and if it's something cool or even if it's just what you have on hand like the last thing you want to be doing is like pulling out a a jigger and measuring your wine pours to make sure that everyone gets some like that shit is no fun for anyone i have to do that when i do fancy wine dinners in the restaurant but that should not be what you're doing to celebrate your holidays exactly exactly so uh you know this has been a a uh I think we can argue, we can all say a pretty crazy decade for a lot of reasons, right? Uh, (laughs) You know, for a lot of reasons, Um, but also a pretty important decade in the world of drinks. So, um, you know, as we, as we barrel towards uh, the end of 2019 and the beginning of 2020 and a completely, you know, the roaring twenties are back, motherfucker. Apparently. Uh, Yeah. People are pretty excited about it. Um, I thought we would, we'd take a time, you know, this this episode sort of look back at what we think are some of the most important drinks, brands, and trends to emerge in the last decade. I think there's a lot of them out there, uh, so we, we probably won't hit all of them. If we miss some that you guys think are really important, um, you guys and gals, uh, let us know um, at podcast.vinepair.com, and we would love to hear like what you think were some of the most important trends and brands of the last decade. But um, you know, Zach, I thought I'd let you kick it off in in terms of you know what we've been chatting about, you and I, and sort of what we think really helped define this last decade when it comes to drinks. So my first one, and, and I, I don't, these are in no particular order, but it was, it was the first thing that came to mind when I started thinking about this prompt. So take that for what it will, is something happened in this decade that I didn't think would have been possible if you'd posed it to me in the, at, in this time of, this time of year, 10 years ago. And that's that in my experience, and I think broadly, uh, most people who work in the restaurant industry and around bars experience, someone dethroned Grey Goose and that's Tito's. And I would have never seen that coming. I mean, not that no one would dethrone them, but that it would be essentially an, a brand that was unknown a decade ago. Uh, and it is by far, well, it's the most called vodka in my restaurants. Uh, we go through more of it than any other. And I do not think we are alone in that. And it's kind of remarkable to me that a decade later, a spirit I'd never heard of, a, a vodka I'd never heard of, is now the number one vodka that I sell. 
I mean, that's a, that's, that's pretty amazing. Um, it, it really is, it is really crazy how, uh, you know, Tito's really sort of came out of nowhere from being, you know, this Austin made product to really the, the number one vodka brand. And you're right. I mean, I, I see it everywhere. It seems to be the call that everyone asks for, uh, at bars in New York City as well. Um, you know, almost like, a consumer thinks they're being smart by ordering it, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's crazy, man. And yeah, in, in only 10 years. And you can see all the other vodka brands who sort of had to now try to react because everyone thought that, you know, vodka was moving in the premium into the premium space, right? Like, the, you know, Grey Goose came onto the market and really there's been incredible business school cases written about Grey Goose. You know how they're like, oh, we're, we're going to price higher than everyone else and we're going to create this premium vodka category. And, and they really did. And everyone, I think, thought that's where vodka was moving. And then Tito's comes in and it's like, nope, we're going to come back in at the lower price and this is what everyone's going to want to drink. And holy crap, it works. Yeah, it's a, it's a remarkable say. Maybe uh, maybe someone's working on a business school case study at Tito's right now. Probably they are. Uh, if they, you, of course, are. <laughs> but yeah, it's uh, you know, and it's and it's kind of this fascinating topic because it's also you know, it reminds me of the conversation you and I had uh, a couple months ago when we did a podcast about vodka, which is it, when I was thinking about this and thinking about the decade, and I was like, you know, for everything that's happened in it and all the other stuff we're going to talk about, a couple of the things on my list are like the big behemoths of the industry whether specific brands or styles of alcoholic beverage and it's important to remember that those things are tremendously important and remain tremendously important and i'm sure will be in the 2020s as well even if they're not what we always talk about 100 percent. so uh i've got one in the in the wine space i think is is pretty interesting and that is apothic red oh first thing on my list too Right. So basically Apothic Red came out in 2011, I think. Um, you know, I think people really started taking a, a lot of notice of it in the in the next few years. But, you know, you can say all you want that there were other wines that sort of created the red blend category. But I think none really made it the powerhouse of a category that it is today. Right? We, we continue to see red blends be like the one of the fastest growing categories of wine in um, America. And when I say red blends, I mean specifically really – red blended, you know, blends of red wine from California, a little bit from Washington and Oregon, but but really mostly from California, um, often with, you know, Zinfandel and Merlot in them and Syrah creating these sort of very juicy, uh, I don't want to, you know, smooth-esque red wines, uh, but but Apothic really is, is that behemoth that led that category. Um, and, I, and I just don't think you can deny that. Um, you know, starting in 2011, uh, Gallo put a ton of money behind this brand, um, and it really did build an entire category behind it. I think it's also one of the, the blends that sort of is responsible now for what we saw towards the later half of uh, the 2000 and teens, which is the emergence of the bourbon barrel aged mm-hmm. uh, red blend. Um, but this is just a brand that sort of has has defined the red blend category in and of itself um, and really has helped grow it to what it's become today. Uh, and I, I just think it's, it, it's pretty phenomenal to see that that sort of really happened just in the last decade. Yeah. I think I'm going to, we're going to talk about some very different styles of wine going forward. Like I, I have some things on my list that are kind of the opposite of Apothic, but I think it's, you make really good points. And I think the other one that I would make about Apothic in particular, and, and they, as you said, weren't the first, I think, you know, you could kind of cite uh, the prisoner as something that is an example of what I'm going to talk about specifically, but it's this idea of tying a wine drinker's identity to a specific wine, but not the way that we had expected. You know, it's an apothic isn't about ver- the varieties in it, really. I mean, you can find that information if you really look. It's not really about where it's from. It's about a style, both in the bottle and, frankly, on the label. And Everyone is has been playing catch up to Gallo since uh, because Apothic still dominates that category. One hundred percent agree. All right, what you got next? All right, so I'm gonna I'll stick in the world of wine, uh, and I'm gonna I'm gonna go completely different side of the spectrum. So this is coming at it not so much from the broad consumer perspective, but a little bit from the sommelier perspective and and sort of a different style of drinking. And so I, on my list were the gang of four Beaujolais producers, uh, which would be Jean-Paul Tevenet, um, Lapierre, like Marcel, I believe is the first name. I'm blanking. I should have taken notes. Jean Foyard and Guy Breton. And the reason I, I picked them out is not that they started making wine in the 2010s. They've been making wine for decades. But the 2010s was the first uh, – w- was when these wines became – 
sort of mandatory wines for a certain kind of wine drinker, a certain kind of sommelier to be familiar with. They were first brought into the U.S. and and sort of popularized earlier um, in a very, very limited way. But Beaujolais is one of these things that definitely was a wine of the 2010s in a certain set. And they really helped drive the conversation around biodynamics, which is kind of how they got their first um, traction. That's the thing that bonded them all together. And then, of course, the sort of natural wine conversation that you and I have had a bunch of times. And and they are not the only people uh, and the only wineries responsible. Beaujolais is not the only place responsible. But it's been a huge locus for biodynamic production, natural winemaking, and the style of wine that comes out of that really kind of... Um, both fruit forward in a way very different than apothic but also you know with a rusticity to it that is um very much uh, a selling point for the wine um and they've gone i was going back and doing a little bit of looking at my own uh, notes which is one of the benefits of having worked in restaurants long enough and um and the price that uh, i would now pay for that wine wholesale has more than doubled in the last decade and it's because of the popularization of the category and of those specific wines, and uh, and so I thought, you know, obviously not necessarily the the <laughs> the behemoth that Apothic is, but I thought I wanted to mention that because it's it's driven a, a very different trend in the wine world. I completely agree. Would you throw in as well, like like the the emergence? I mean, I know I know we're talking specifically just about Beaujolais here, and I think um, you know we I've seen in our market of New York just the the popularity of that wine explode you know restaurants devoted solely to it on the wine list i mean it's gotten pretty ridiculous um with everyone sort of searching for an alternative to burgundy i think also as a reaction let's be honest to the to the skyrocketing prices of of burgundy wines oh for sure um, you know and and looking for some sort of flavor profile we i've even you know talking with the editorial team about like sort of our just article that's going to come out about you know, the best wine trends of the decade, looking at, you know, everyone sort of searching for just the Burgundy alternatives, I feel like has has totally ratcheted up over the last decade, right? Of, you know, this area in Spain is the next Burgundy. This area in Italy is the next Burgundy. This area in Greece is the next Burgundy. Um, just because everyone is, is trying to look for some sort of flavor profile that they can access that isn't so expensive like Burgundy is at this point mm-hmm. in time. Um, but do you also think in terms of when you, when you mentioned, you know, sort of, Biodynamics, natural wine. That also the emergence of you know Chenin Blanc and the Loire and Cab Franc has had an impact on that as well. Would you say is as responsible, or do you really think that the, this this Beaujolais emergence is really what was sort of helping to drive that? I mean, from my perspective, and this is this is just you know my own recollection, my own experience. It's not heavily researched. Beaujolais was first to me. It was the it was I was hearing about Beaujolais. I was being talked to about Beaujolais. It was what you know the the wine professionals that I sort of spent time with and and looked up to in some ways. It was the 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 category more than the Loire in the early part of the 2010s that they were most excited about. And and that's not to say that people weren't excited about um, Cab Franc and and Chenin Blanc from the Loire. They were, but but those wines I think were a little harder to find, and they didn't have the sort of very kind of neat and tidy story in a way that Beaujolais in general and the Gang of Four in particular had where, where it was sort of, you know, the they were, it was this sort of like, you know, rejection of Beaujolais Nouveau and the idea of Beaujolais as, you know, thoroughly unserious wine. And, and not that the Loire Valley has lots of very unserious red and white wine and there are producers uh, who are very much dedicated to changing some of that. But, but people have always known Vouvray. They've always taken Vouvray seriously, which is a Chenin Blanc based wine from the Loire, uh, maybe less so with Cab Franc. Um, but, but, you know, Chinon and, um, uh, and Bourgoyle are wines that have been also, you know, reasonably respected. And Beaujolais was really, in my experience and, and certainly talking to people a little bit older than me was a joke. Um, until relatively recently, outside of a very, very, very small part of the wine industry, so so I do think Beaujolais is uh, particularly important. Not the only thing that should be mentioned in this story, but it, to me, it's what drove a lot of this interest in that style of wine. And and as to really quick to the point about sort of um, Burgundy alternatives, it is sort of weirdly ironic, I guess, or, or there's some there's something in there of. In the decade, uh, which obviously started before 2010, but but really has taken off in this decade, where Pinot Noir has really um, been something that has been a, a, 
a huge uh, category in the world of wine is the same decade when when really Burgundy left planet Earth in terms of pricing. Like the high end Burgundy is just no longer a thing that anyone besides the extremely wealthy can buy. Makes sense. All right, I'm going to switch from wine to beer. Cool. Excellent. Go for it. Awesome. So I think this is one that we we don't realize uh, started as long ago as it did, but also only in the last decade, which is Hetty Topper. So while Hetty Topper was being made as a um, you know beer, I think two times a year at the bar, it didn't start getting canned and really create this whole idea of line culture in craft beer until 2011. And that was the beginning of what we now know as the haze craze. So this complete movement of what you now see all over the country from a a move away from uh, IPAs that are, you know, bitter and uh, sort of biting sort of West Coast style, as you would say, to this very hazy, very fruity, very floral IPA style that's now everywhere that, you know, even brands like Sierra Nevada with Hazy Little Thing are figuring out how to can and sell nationally. And I think that's, that's really interesting. And, and on top of that, it, it's not just the movement to the sort of more floral IPA, but it's this movement towards cans. Mm-hmm. Right. So everyone's sort of accepting the more sustainable version of packaging and line culture, which I think really has defined uh, the craft beer movement, especially in the at the end in the end of the teens. Um, so you really see people across the country, craft beer, you know, craft breweries looking to stand out, creating these sort of limited beers and these, uh, you know, release moments in which their followers have to wait in line starting sometimes as early as, you know, three, four in the morning uh, in order to get these beers and inside these lines, having these sort of communities that pop up these, you know, trading experiences where people are able to, you know, trade this one brewery that they brought with them while they're waiting in line for this other brewery for a, a, a even third brewery. Um, people, you know, getting these limited edition beers all across the country, almost in the way that we used to, you know, collect, you know, baseball cards, uh, which is pretty amazing uh, that, that that's what's happened in, in, you know, only the last 10 years. Um and across the board, you've seen, again, this just massive explosion of craft breweries, right? So I think we're at, at 7,200 or something in the country. I mean, something wow. unreal in terms of how many craft breweries there are. Um, and everyone is making these sort of beers now that they, they think are hopefully collectible, um, limited release, et cetera. And I think Hetty Topper really was one of the catalysts of this just because they had a beer that was in such demand that people were willing to line up for. It was interesting too because Hetty Topper really wasn't limited release. They were just making as much as they could make. And they mm-hmm. sort of, you know, fell into this uh, and, and created this culture that now really defines, I think, a lot of what people would consider the best craft brewers, right? So you see, uh, you know, in in New York, for example, um, you know, other half really mimicked this model as as the way to sort of become uh, a really well-known brewery making these kind of hazy IPAs and these limited releases people had to line up for. Um, you see this in, uh, you know, what happened in a lot of other – Tropicalia, the the beer in uh, out of Athens. Uh, so you, you see this a, a lot in a lot of other breweries as well, but like really mimicked by Hetty Topper, which is amazing. Yeah. I wonder too, you know, one thing that I wasn't sure if it would come up as – because it's not – it's sort of related but isn't drink a drinker or or alcoholic is, you know, you and I have talked a few times on this podcast about Instagram and its influence in a variety of ways and setting aside the whole influencer issue. But, um, you know, to me, I also associate, uh, Hetty Topper and the the hazy IPA thing and can culture and all that as being heavily driven by the ability to share pictures, frankly, on Instagram. Like, do you, is that your sense too, that, that some of this is not just that, that how it's spread so quickly has to do with, you know, a very potent social media form? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you see that this trading is happening on social media. Um, but what's interesting is it's like, it's not just on social media, right? So it's like the trading is digital and physical, which I think is amazing. So we're, we're posting about things we have on social media, but we're in the same line as other people. We just don't know them. And then we're going and meeting them in person, in line, and trading these beers. So, like, for example, like, what you'll see happen on social media is, like, a brewery will post about the release of a new can. Uh, 
in in the comments then of that post, people will begin saying, I'm going to be there. Are you going to be there? I'm bringing these beers. I want to trade these beers. And they'll begin trading in the comments of the post about the release of the new beer. But then they'll meet in person as opposed to, I think, what we've sort of come to expect is happening across the the world in terms of just our movement towards digital and e-commerce, which would be that, you know, someone would post digitally and then someone would just, you know, FedEx it or something to you, mm-hmm. right? So there still is this really crazy, phys- you know, physical interaction, which is happening, in-person interaction, which is which is pretty cool. Um, but yeah, of course, dude, like everything is being fueled by Instagram, which is just insane. Okay. I'm going to stick with beer, but again, total opposite end of the spectrum. On my list, Michelob Ultra. We haven't talked a whole lot about. Uh, we, we've sort of talked. You and I have talked offline about doing a podcast about the Health Halo and that whole thing and drinking. We, we've talked a little bit about Sober Curious, and not that obviously Michelob Ultra does have alcohol on it, but but to me, it's this fascinating story of a beer that's sold like a energy drink, I guess, or, or not energy, like a sports drink. Like I don't understand it, but. I think it's succeeding. I mean, you might know better than I do, but like massively succeeding. It's so weird to me. It's so funny. And it's like, but it's, it's been everywhere this decade. And, and I, that's, you know, I, I, I just, I marvel at it. I have never had a Michelob Ultra. Have you? I've, I've had it once, maybe. I think if we were to, bl- you know, if you wanted to, to connect, something from the beginning of this decade really clearly to the end of the decade, you you could make the case of connecting Michelob Ultra to the seltzer movement. Mm-hmm. Because Michelob Ultra was the first really, you know, malt, you know, brewed beverage, right? So beer. Uh, and let's be clear, seltzer, a lot of it is brewed. Um, there's very few seltzers that are actually tonic and vodka out there for listeners who think that that's all of what Spike Seltzer is. A lot of it is obviously malt beverage. Um, they really very clearly talked about calorie count. And put the calorie count on the beer, and you're seeing that in the seltzer movement, right? Of, uh, you know, people like White Claw and Truly, et cetera, really prominently putting the calorie count on these seltzers and sort of telling drinkers this is better for you. Uh, and this this health halo that we've talked about a bunch, which I think is really interesting and really can can really be tied back to Michelob Ultra. Yeah. And the beer that like your dad drank after golf. I mean, that that's what I think is also really interesting about Michelob Ultra. It's like to me, that's where I first encountered it. Was like I was home to visit my parents, and like my dad asked if I wanted to play golf. And you know, I, I don't play golf that often, but uh I was home and I was like, sure, dad, I'll play golf with you. And it was at the golf course where like I went, you know, after playing with him and like seeing basically a bunch of like older dudes drinking it uh, you know, around the clubhouse. And then you saw it just sort of expand from there to like, hey, after a run, you should drink Michelob Ultra. Hey, after you deadlift, you should drink Michelob Ultra. And then they just sort of ran with it. It's, it's pretty amazing how they built that brand from like, oh, maybe this is like something that some some guys would want to drink after playing a round of golf to like, hey, after you run a marathon, you should totally chug a Michelob Ultra. <laughs> I think they have marathons now where you chug one while you're running it. At least they should if they don't already. I think they do as well, which yeah. is crazy. Um, all right. So I think my my next sort of trend is is not a brand it's it's a bar or a few bars, um, but I think they are bars that sort of have helped define what has happened in the world of cocktails, and those bars would be the closing of Milk and Honey and the opening of Dead Rabbit. Okay. So for those that aren't aware, right, Dead Rabbit is this amazing bar in Lower Manhattan that really is almost like an Irish pub but that serves incredible cocktails has been named best cocktail bar in the world a few years running. And then you had milk and honey, which was the exact opposite, which was sort of the beginning of cocktail culture, which happened obviously opened, you know, before anyone dings me well before the 2010s, um, but closed this decade um, and was, you know, this place where you had to have a secret number. You had to, there was a, a special set of rules you had to, to follow. And really a lot of people, you know, say, and I, I think are correct, was the 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 parent of the of the modern cocktail movement, right? That like it took this idea of speakeasy, secret number, special rules, et cetera, to start getting people into the joy of cocktails again, almost with the gimmick of like going to this special place that no one else knew about, right? And then Dead Rabbit was a reaction to that, right? And now you've seen a lot of bars follow that across the world, from you know, you know, like Limontour in Mexico City to Clumsies and Athens, et cetera, these bars that now are just these huge, large format bars that make really great cocktails and that are fun to be at and that, you know, 
don't have a password at the door and aren't that speakeasy mindset. And obviously they're still charging the same prices for cocktails. And I think what this signals is that like the, the classic cocktail and the modern cocktail really have become part of our drinking culture fully. Um, you know, I think across the country now, we expect that every community will have a great cocktail bar. Um, and that cocktail bar doesn't necessarily have to be pretentious or doesn't necessarily have to be uh, a place where we sit down and we, we talk in hushed voices. It can also be a place that has live music, but that where you can get a really great Boulevardier or, you know, paper plane or something that's, you know, obviously I, I know we have strong feelings about this, but, uh, you know, that is made by the, the, the mixologist there that is a house cocktail. Um, and I think that that's just, that's, that's really interesting to see how that evolution happened within this, this last 10 years. And I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next decade in terms of, will there be a reaction now to all of these bars that are more, I don't want to say party bars, but raucous and loud where you, where you're spending, you know, upwards of 18, 19, $20 for this drink back to the movement of, milk and honey. And then I guess you could put in there like death and co and a bunch of these other bars across the country. Um, or will we see like the cocktail movement just continue to grow in the place where like, Hey, maybe we're going to walk into dive bars in the next decade. And they're also going to have a, a craft cocktail list. Yeah. Well, for one, I really appreciate you mentioning the hushed tones of that previous era of bar, because to me, that was always one of the big issues I had with them is in the end, they were, could be interesting places, but it was too much like going to a museum for my personal tastes, like to me, if we're out drinking, inherently that's going to involve conversation, noise, fun, hopefully. And that that's just the kind of thing that you couldn't have at a bar like Milk and Honey. You could have amazing cocktails for sure. And if you're a very specific kind of person, maybe you could have a certain amount of fun, you know, really, truly just obsessing over the drink. But, you know, to me, and I went to plenty of those uh, speakeasy style bars all over the country, uh, and, you know, they still exist for sure. Um, but for the most part, I, I'm, I personally really welcome the return to the bar as a convivial place, a place where you go and you hang out and you talk and you're a little loud. And, you know, it's that's the deal. That's the that's the whole point. You know, it's it, to me, it's not fun if, you know, everyone is just uh, staring at their phone or, you know, just, you know, sort of murmuring in the background like, I, you know, I want it to be a lively attitude, hopefully. 100%. I completely agree. OK, so speaking of things that contributed to a lively attitude and environment in the 2010s this one this one i feel like i almost forgot about i had to remind myself how impactful it was in the middle part of this decade and that's fireball which is probably still super popular oh my god i totally forgot about fireball in the middle of the decade i totally forgot about it and it was everywhere for a couple of years um and i you know i don't and know apparently that... making a comeback oh really well there you go it's been down yeah. just long enough i don't have i thought i i just was like doing my my research and my thinking and i said i can't not mention fireball because it was a huge deal i don't have like a trend to connect it to i don't have a deep thought about like what it means or what it meant other than just that there will always 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 be a place for basically sweet flavored whiskey that people can do shots of when they want to get wild and you know it was southern comfort for a certain generation and it was fireball for for this generation and i don't know what comes next but uh maybe it's just fireball again but man it was uh it was incredibly popular for a couple of years there it really was. I mean, it was completely everywhere, which is crazy. And I think what's really funny, so the evolution of that brand is, you know, you saw it become this brand that everyone was obsessed with taking shots of and then sort of a brand that sort of tried to catch up with the cocktail movement you saw in the late in the late teens, right? Uh, and start trying to make uh, fireball cocktails or convince us all that we could have fireball cocktails. Uh, and now I think you do see the brand sort of going back to its roots and back to that shot again, which is really interesting. So, so we'll, we'll see how it stands, but I think you're right. Like there will always be some sort of brand or brands that are meant for shooting, whether that's Jägermeister, whether that's fireball, whether that's something else that replaces it down the road. And I think, Building on this, I, I do I do want to uh, use this to segue into another trend we saw in in alcohol, which uh, I think Fireball helped lead, which was this movement across the board in the in this last decade, and we'll see if it sticks to spicy drinks. So whether mm. that was you know really spicy uh, you know Bloody Marys and Micheladas to lots and lots and lots of spicy beers, right? So this was again extreme flavors. So this was before the hazy IPA. You could argue that this helped 
usher in the hazy IPA. We we're looking for these really strong, fruity, aromatic flavors. But these beers that were made with spice, you see this as well with tequilas and mezcals. People looking for this extreme flavor. You saw it happening in our food culture. Uh, you saw it happening at you know even brands like Taco Bell, uh, et cetera, across, across the board that were really creating these fast food dishes that were all about spice. Um, so, you know, I think this last decade was the decade of extreme spice flavor and we'll see. It, it definitely seemed to, to me to die down in our drinks. It never came to wine. I, I literally, I did, uh, have a prediction. I think a few years ago, I, I was wrong. I can admit what I'm wrong that I think we were going to get a spicy wine just because we had already had, you know, bourbon barrel age and we'd had uh, cold brew coffee infused wines. I was like, okay, yeah, that's, that's right. Jalapeno wine is coming next. <laughs> Hasn't come yet. Hopefully if someone is planning it, please don't do that to us. Uh, we don't need a savvy bee spiked with jalapenos, but uh, it definitely seemed like for a while we could get there um, just because the, the impact of spice on our, on our flate, on our palates was just so pervasive, uh, that, you know, it seemed to be everywhere in our drinks. For sure. Okay. So, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna go with like, it's kind of almost the opposite of, of something spicy. It's like the epitome of smooth. And it's something that you and I have talked a little bit about. And I think another brand that has to be talked about in this past decade is Pappy Van Winkle. Um, which obviously has existed for much longer, but was not on the public conscious uh, in the public consciousness until uh, the 2010s. And for those of you who somehow are unfamiliar with what Pappy Van Winkle is, it's um, a range of extremely aged uh, bourbons that is made by Buffalo Trace Distillery, and they are comically expensive now and hard to find. Um, but but we're certainly the the most uh, iconic. Uh, expression of this trend towards extreme aging in bourbon and whiskey generally and signified this you know really in a lot of ways the whiskey's i don't even say return to prominence i think whiskey is at a point now that it's never been at in in history at least in 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 you know the last century let's say i agree i think it really has helped continue to grow that category and has caused people to look for now other whiskeys that can be that maybe we had forgotten about and we can jack the prices up on. You know, like I think in the last, you know, over the last 10 years, the very beginning of this decade, um, you know, my wife and I used to have bottles of W.L. Weller on our bar <laughs> that we could buy for like you don't 17, anymore. $17 a bottle at, you know, the liquor store. And I'm, I remember walking into a restaurant in uh, Alphabet City that it opened on Avenue B called Back 40. And we went in and like had a drink before dinner and the bartender telling us like, oh, if you like these kinds of bourbons, like, well, let me tell you about a bourbon that we sell for, you know, eight bucks a glass. It's called W.L. Weller, you know, it's special reserve, it's whatever. And now you can't find it at all. And people are willing to spend hundreds of dollars on these bottles. I should have bought so much Weller then. I mean, yeah. It's just insane how the community really blew that that bourbon out of out of the water, and you see it happening with everything else too. Colonel E. H. Taylor, I mean, just everything. Um, and I think it shows that you know this this craze has no signs of stopping, and it's why in the same same you know you see with so many people getting into the world of craft beer, you're seeing so many new distilleries open who think, oh well, man, I can get a piece of this. Like all I got to do is figure out this magic formula and then wait fifty years. Yeah. That part's a little harder. <laughs> a little harder. So um, I've got two brands at the same time um, back in the wine space that I think really define the last decade. Um, one did start in 2007, right? And that's Whispering Angel. And the other is White Girl Rosé. Oh. And I think that both of them really define this this decade of rosé and that rosé really became the dominant wine for most of America. Um, if you look at, you know, just – trends and you look at our trends specifically because obviously I, I I love the vine pair data set you see that rose over the last especially few years has had the most dominant consumer interest of any category of wine period and across the entire year right I know we've talked about this before but not just in the summer uh, but all year long it, it seems it's it's more dominant than interest in Cabernet than interest in red blends etc and the reason I'm picking these two brands is because I think they're the perfect brands to represent the fact that Rosé is both high-end and low-end at the same time. Mm -hmm. And while you may not believe that now Whispering Angel is high-end, right? It may 
made you be a mass market brand. It's high enough that LVMH just bought a huge portion of that product and that Bud Light bought the other one, right? <laughs> so, you know, Whispering Angel bought by LVMH, which I'd predicted for a long time. You know, I think they've either, I think they bought 55% of Whispering Angel, right? So they really own the controlling interest in that wine. Um, and LVMH only buys luxury products, let's be clear. And the fact that AB and Bev, the makers of Bud Light, bought White Girl Rose says the exact same thing on the other end, right? That Rose has become the wine for all people, regardless of if you want to drink really cheap, cheerful, we may not even say well-made rosé or you want to drink at the very high end of rosé. It's a wine that's acceptable across all socioeconomic groups, across all occasions. It really has become the wine of an entire season, but also just of celebrating in general. It's pretty unbelievable to me what has happened in the world of, of pink wine in just the last 10 years. Uh, and I think you can't deny that those two brands specifically had a lot to do with it. I'm really glad that you were the one who brought up Rosé and not me because it's on my list. But I had like literally, I was like, Rosé, and then in parentheses, but what brands? And I think you did an excellent job of encapsulating um, the the breadth of interest in Rosé um, and how it's really, really grown. I mean, again, talking about things that have, have changed dramatically since 2010, uh, Rosé is, I can't even, there aren't very many other things in, in the beverage alcohol world that I would say have gone from, you know, that was a fringe, fringe drink 10 years ago. And now, you like you said, it's everywhere and it's and it's a drink for all seasons which i think is great it's awesome rosé should be an all-season drink uh it's just kind of amazing to me that it got there that quickly i mean it really is it's unreal that it got there that quickly right i mean it's just unreal so since we were talking about luxury products i have one more luxury product uh that i think you're gonna roll your eyes at sorry can't help it i have to say krug and the reason for that is again obviously not something that started this decade but but here is the reason because at least among the sort of wine cognoscenti, somehow, and not somehow, I mean, Krug has always had a tremendous reputation. The Their single vineyard bottlings have always been among the most expensive and highly sought after champagnes on the planet. But they went from being in the conversation when you talk to most sommeliers and wine professionals about their favorite champagnes to being, I don't know, 75% of the answer I get now, 80% of the answer, you know, you hear you've got some holdouts for a few other brands, but Krug has like come to dominate a very specific space in the in the wine world. They're the thing that you see at all the fancy parties that that are like wine industry parties. Um and that's definitely that was not the case a decade ago. Um at least not the parties I went to. Maybe I wasn't going to the right parties. So let me ask you a question. So first of all, I think I mean I definitely think you see Krug everywhere. I think, obviously, again, for those that don't know, it is also an LVMH-owned brand, um, and that's all money. Um, you know, I I definitely know there's there's a lot of you know very highly uh, thought of uh, and well respected SOMs that have become brand ambassadors for the brand. Um, so that also makes sense to me. But you're right. I mean, it hasn't been a brand that's been around though just this decade, right? It's been forever. Yeah. So I am curious, what were the brands then before this decade that weren't that that you saw it besides Krug? Well, so I think, you know, it was it would have been a thing where depending on who you were talking to within the wine world, you would have heard a lot more, you know, I mean, a decade ago, Dom Perignon was your dominant high end champagne. And not just public perception, but even within the community, I think for a lot of people, Salon, which is still the thing I hear from other people as well. Um, you know, you might hear of a few, you know, I mean, I think um, you would have heard a little bit more from like there are other champagne houses that have um, great reputations. This was also the decade of a lot of growth in the grower champagne um, space. Obviously, again, not a new thing uh, for the 2010s, but grew a lot in this decade. But but I wanted to point out Krug too because you actually you did a you kind of highlighted something that's important to note in this, which is like a little bit what we were talking about with Hetty Topper and and the sort of culture of influencing people, even very highly uh, sort of elevated people within a community. People think that they can't be who think they can't be influenced. Yeah, exactly. Are are definitely influenced by what they're seeing other sommeliers, other wine professionals drinking on Instagram. And wine has had this happen with a lot of things, but but to me, Krug is a great example of it because it's one of the ones I think has been most driven by that very specific phenomenon of I'm on Instagram, I'm looking at 
15 sommeliers who I might look up to or admire who are, you know, maybe I've never met, you know, I just follow them. And any given night, at least one of them seems to be drinking Krug, maybe two or three of them, especially if they're hanging out. And that influences it, it, it. I don't think that, I don't know how much it's spread to the broader drinking public, but it's definitely. Uh, had a big influence within the wine and sommelier communities. And so I wanted to to mention it there. So I think one of the ones that I <clears throat> I had on my maybe list that I want to ask you about, because I, I think it's similar, was what about Solos? I mean, I know a lot of people, I mean, I really, until being deep in the world of Vine Pair, had not heard of Solos. I'd, I'd somewhat been aware of Krug, but I feel like that's also, you know, that, that, that's become like, that's the grower champagne brand that everyone's like, Oh, you're cool if you drink Solos. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. Um, I think the thing, the difference to me though, is that you can't really get Solos. It's hard. You know, there's there's some of it out there, depending on where you are, what part of the the country or the world you're in. It's maybe a little easier to find. But part of what made Krug, you know, what what drove some of this with Krug is that you can find Krug everywhere. I mean, not maybe necessarily the right. single the single vineyard stuff, but they make a fair bit of it. And so the it's point- It's an LVMH brand. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, and so that to me is is the was sort of what I was getting at. Is like, there are an innumerable number of, you know, sort of culty, and not in the cult like Napa Cab way, but like sommelier wines that over the last 10 years have come and gone or, or still are around that are, that are super popular. But the problem with a lot of them is that they become popular in part because they are very small production. And and Krug is one of the very few wines that's become really, really popular with sommeliers that is widely made. Um, you know, usually those two things do not go hand in hand. And so I wanted to highlight it just because if anything, it's interesting. It's also delicious. I mean, I am not gonna I'm not out here trying to knock Krug. It's it's delicious, delicious wine. Um, <laughs> and uh, you know, so so that that helps. I do think though, like across the board in in all three of these these areas, wine, beer, and cocktails, what it does show is that uh you know, all of us are susceptible to being marketed to, right? Like the the emergence of Krug, like we were saying, yes, the product is amazing, but also like it's owned by a, a one of the one of the companies you could argue is one of the best companies at marketing in the world, right? They own the the highest luxury fashion brands in the world. Um, they own some of the the, the most prominent wines in the world. They own Ekem. They right. They're very good at marketing, um, and they understand how to talk to the right audiences they want to talk to, and. This was not an accident. No, definitely um, not. You know, at all. And so I, I think that, that, that that's pretty amazing. So uh, I have a few more. I know we're this has been a long one, so I want to I want to sort of bang these out really quickly. So my next one uh, would be Underwood uh, canned wine. Okay, right. I think we can't that we can't deny that that's going to become even bigger. I think in uh, in the twenties in in the, in the roaring twenties. I think we're all going to be. Uh, drinking out of cans. Um, I think that they were one of the first, though, and probably the, the biggest brand you saw that really pushed into can wines. I think their their large format can now, which was the traditional you know, can we're used to it with craft beer, uh, has really been sort of pushed back against now people moving to a smaller can that really is more traditional, you know, a more traditional four to five ounce wine pour. Cause I think when you were drinking a can of Underwood, you're basically drinking half a bottle, um, equivalent of half a bottle of wine. Uh, but they really, they, they made canned wine cool. And I think that that's, uh, you know, there's only upside right now in the world of, of cans and the acceptance that most drinkers have for wine and cans. Yeah, for sure. Uh, okay. So I, let's see here quickly. Uh, I have to mention Fernet. Um, since we're talking about shots and the industry yep. on my end, uh, went from something that was, you know, basically no one ever drank, um, unless you were in Italy in Northern Italy specifically, uh, to a product that you can find in bars, almost, you know, most any bar across the country. Um, and also because, you know, Frenet was the vanguard in a lot of ways. Well, I think you actually argue Jaeger was a vanguard. Frenet kind of followed up and offered a, a much more sort of, uh, indie perspective, I suppose, or something, you know, not a, not a mass, not a mass marketed thing. Uh, but really introduced the, this country in a lot of ways and, and really influential people within it and the bar community to the idea of bitter as a, a really important flavor. And, and if spicy was your thing for the 2010s, um, I think we will only, uh, see bitter grow as a, you know, critical component in, in beverage and, and food in the 2020s. That's my prediction. Well, so let's move right from bitter into more bitter, which I think <clears throat> go hand in hand, and that would be Campari and Dante. Uh, and I put them together because I think Dante is the cocktail bar, just named number one cocktail bar in the world, that you know is the perfect representation of 
you know, what Campari has done, but the Negroni. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, it really is the trend of, of, you know, this last decade in terms of cocktails. It went from a cocktail I would guarantee you no one had ever heard of at the beginning of the decade to a massive cocktail across the country where, you know, again, in the same way that you can probably find a great cocktail bar in every city in the country now, you can also find the Negroni almost everywhere. Um, and, you know, again, very simple drink to make, uh, you know, th- just three equal parts, but that, you know, really wasn't around. I think early in the decade, it was still most people were ordering an old fashioned as like their sort of go to craft cocktail. And it really has now become this Negroni and now all these riffs on the Negroni. And then you have cocktail bars who it seems at the beginning to have the audacity to create a cocktail list in which all they make are Negronis yeah. uh, and then win best cocktail bar in the world finally. So I think it just, you know, it, it shows where we are moving. And as you were saying, this movement to more bitter style of cocktails that feel more savory, that are less sweet, you know, the old fashioned sort of is what got us into cocktails cocktails in terms of that like that sugary profile that you just get with the old fashioned uh, into a, a cocktail that is more savory which i think is is pretty amazing i think we're going to see more of that in the next decade all right i just it, it, we're, we're saying the word a bunch i'm going to say it one more time uh this is my last one so i you can you can go uh with as many more as you have after this adam um I didn't have a great marketing or a great brand for this exactly, um, other than I than the one that occurred to me in part because uh, they're Seattle based is um, it, bitters as a as a uh, sort of not exactly beverage but obviously a critical component component to most uh, craft cocktails. Uh, Scrappy's bitters, which is based here in Seattle um, and became a national and international brand, uh, but just in general the the proliferation of bitters um, as a Again, a thing that you, when you know, a decade ago, when you went into anything but the best cocktail bars, you know, they maybe had Angostura and Peychauds, and that would be about it. Maybe they'd have some orange bitters if you were lucky. And now almost every bar you go into is going to have 10, 15, 20 or more different bitters um, on hand. And that is a, a, a huge trend, a huge change. And again, you know, emblematic of the evolution of the cocktail and the craft cocktail in this country. So I got one more, which we've sort of been avoiding the entire time, but I think we have to say it, which is natural wine. Mm. And whether you it's, – it's that the term you use or like when I've been in Europe, I've seen people just refer to it as you know sort of – I mean I've seen people refer to it as healthy wine or sustainably made wine. I think there's now people who are <clears throat> rejecting the term and really pushing back to just calling these wines what they are, which is whether they're organic or biodynamic or sustainably made, et cetera. You cannot deny that this – this push of natural wine has especially been incredibly pervasive in a lot of the larger wine cities. So I, I would say cities that are that are right now have been flush with Bordeaux and Burgundies, et cetera, for decades uh, in the last probably five years of this decade. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with not just the fact that we're moving towards wines that we think are, you know, more, you know, better for the environment, et cetera, which we should, but this desire for this next generation of wine professionals, drinks professionals to discover something that the generation before them hadn't. Um, I think that's a huge reason why these wines have taken off. And for a lot of consumers to, to drink wines in which the flavors are very much more um, easy to perceive. Um, and so, you know, we've talked about this before. I think we talked about this last week. Um, but I think we can't deny that the natural wine movement was very controversial in wine over the last decade. And I think, you know, we definitely have predictions here at VinePair that the term will kind of disappear in the next few years. And I think that's pretty true. And I think you'll see something else come up. But I think you will see – you're going to begin to see a rejection of the term natural wine and sort of a reckoning with what makes one wine natural and and another not, I think, you know, by just the own industry, you know, the, the people inside the natural wine movement fighting with each other now so much, uh, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens over the next decade. But I mean, yeah, we got to, we got to mention it or else we'd be not really acknowledging one of the largest, you know, trends in wine over the last 10 years. Oh, for sure. And, and I think, you know, the, the thing I will say about it in terms of, in addition to sort of the, the, the reasons you mentioned for it growing in popularity. Um, and I do want to, mentioned that I agree with you very much that the 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 growth of interest in 
wines that are made uh, and especially grapes that are grown in a sort of sustainable fashion exactly how you define that is is kind of up to each individual but but that's i i think an unquestionably positive trend um i think that the the other part of what you're talking about and this all ties together and there's there's a big thing to be said about you know the 2010s in a much more um <laughs> holistic sense than just in terms of what we're talking about in drinks but you know the other thing that natural wine and and the wines that are affiliated with it offered was this chance to sort of experience something that <sighs> felt authentic to people in a way that a lot of the world of wine didn't i mean to be blunt at least in the early days of the natural wine movement, none of those wines were owned by LVMH. Like right. there was something about that authenticity or sense of authenticity that resonated and still resonates with people. And again, I think there's something really wonderful about, you know, looking to buy wines from relatively small producers in sort of overlooked areas. I think it can be something that's overdone. And sometimes the those sort of secondary characteristics like small production like lesser known appellation can be don't don't make up for the fact if the wine isn't good that doesn't do it for me but i agree and i think there is something uh nice and and sort of heartwarming about this this move towards you know let's not just keep buying the same you know wine that our parents bought you know let's let's go out there and explore and sometimes exactly. exploration is messy but but i think that spirit is is a really uh, admirable one and hopefully one that does carry forward into the next decade totally well zach this has been probably one of the longest podcasts we've done uh in the last year or so hope everyone enjoyed listening to it this has been super fascinating there's definitely ones we missed um so again if you think there were big trends or brands of the last decade that were hugely influential that we that somehow we skipped um just because again we don't have 24 hours, guys. This is a, an hour long. This has already been almost an hour long podcast. Email us at podcast at vinepair.com. Uh, Zach and I and the rest of the Vinepair team would love to hear uh, what you think. Um, and thank you again so much for listening. Uh, if you enjoy the show, please leave us a comment, review, etc. It really helps people find the show. And Zach, I will talk to you again next week. Sounds good. Thanks so much for listening to the Vinepair podcast. If you like what you've heard, please rate us or review us wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps people discover the show. Now for the credits. The Vinepair Podcast is produced by myself and Zach Jabal and is engineered by Nick Patry. We recorded out of cloud studios in Seattle, Washington, and also in our New York City headquarters. I'd also like to give a special shout out to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and the rest of the Vinepair staff who help us conceive of the show every single week. Thanks again for listening.